0: Father when we stop to think about what we were prior to your sending Christ to save us and when we think about the many acts of rebellion that we committed against you when we think about the mountain of iniquity that separated us from you it truly is miraculous that we have any right to bring before you our petitions, to speak to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, to call you Father. We confess to you this morning that the vast majority of the time we take this for granted. We pray that this morning you would relieve us of that mistaken waste of time and that we would would once again be amazed by the reality that we can pray, that we should pray, and that when we do, you, our great almighty and benevolent God, is eager to hear us. This morning we read a passage of Scripture, Father, that for some may be difficult to understand, for others difficult to accept. We pray that your Holy Spirit would make it easy to understand, that He would help us to love it, that He would help us to live in light of it. We desperately need Your help with all of these things, and we do pray them boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, our brother and Your Son, amen. Well, open with me to Mark chapter 11, please. Mark chapter 11 The last time we were in Mark we considered verses 12 through 25 and this morning we're going to go back to verses 20 through 25 paying special attention to verse 24. We don't we don't typically do this. We don't typically go through a passage of scripture and then and then revisit something we've already seen but uh, I will explain why we're going to do that here in a few minutes but as you're as you're turning in your bibles to Mark 11:20 if you would stand with me we'll read those few verses Mark 11:20 20 through 25 As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You may be seated. Those last couple of verses, verse 24 and verse 25, they can raise many questions, so many that as a matter of pastoral care, I want to come back and and spend sufficient time dealing with them. In fact, we'll, we'll have an entire message for each verse. This morning, verse 24, and next week, Lord willing, on verse 25. Verse 24 again, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, some will read that and be absolutely energized and think to themselves, where is, where is the pillow for my knees? Let's, let's wear this thing out and, and get it done. They'll, they'll be energized for prayer. Others will read that same verse and be almost demoralized. Demoralized because they, they think, wow, the, the only thing preventing my prayers from being answered is my weak faith and who among us does not have a history of weak faith and and still others may have perhaps taken this verse to the bank they've they have prayed grand things good things with stalwart faith and then nothing happened and so they they either wonder to themselves when they come by this passage again, they wonder, is verse 24 really true? Or they rush to, to bring other passages from the Bible to qualify this verse so much that it barely resembles itself anymore so as to make themselves believe that it is true still. So what should we do with verse 24? Well, Remember that, that no verse should be divorced from its context, and, and I'll remind you that, that this verse comes on the back of, of one of Mark's sandwiches. You'll remember from last time that Mark has taken one story, the cursing of the fig tree, he's split it in half, and in the middle he inserted the, the, the story of his cleansing Jesus cleansing the temple. So he sandwiched those two stories together, and with that sandwich technique, Mark is intending for us to interpret those two stories together. And so based on the connection of of these verses at the end with the the other story, we we should understand that that what we're reading in verse 24 is not simply an independent teaching on, on, on prayer, but it should be understood in the context of the Lord Jesus' judgment on the temple depicted in His casting out those buying and selling there. And the implied question is, if the temple is going to be destroyed, as, as we saw last time, if the temple is going to be destroyed, how will our prayers be answered? See, the, the temple was the locus of man's communion with God. Without the temple, how will man commune with God, enjoy fellowship with God? How will man pray? More, more practically, does this mean our prayers will not be answered? And the, the big picture answer to the question is that in Christ's kingdom, the physical temple becomes obsolete and communion with God depends upon faith and forgiveness. Faith, verse 24, forgiveness, verse 25. You believe in God and you forgive others. And this morning, we're we're concentrating on the former, believing in God. Next week, Lord willing, we will concentrate on the latter, forgiving others. Now, before we jump into the issue of prayer and faith, let's talk about that issue of communion. I've, I've just said that in Christ's kingdom, the physical temple becomes obsolete and our communion with God depends upon faith and forgiveness. And that's crucial that we understand what communion is and that we not mistake it for another reality, which is union. There's communion and there's union. We need to spend a a few minutes here considering those two things, communion and union. Taking a bit of time to do that will serve us not only this morning, but also next week. So first of all, let's think about union. Union with Christ is our eternal, unchanging, saving connection to Christ. That is the first point in your notes if you have those. Union with Christ is our eternal, unchanging, saving connection to Christ. We have these great bookends in the in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans that speak to our union with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are are in Christ, He's in us, and because of that, there's no condemnation for us. That is, on the last day, on Judgment Day, we will hear the words that we have been justified in Christ. There's no condemnation. At the back end of Romans chapter 8, in verses 38 and 39, writes this, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those verses are all speaking to our union with Christ. Another great verse speaking to our union with Christ is 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we, we have... Occasion to quote quite often, here' at Providence. It reads, "For our sake, He, God, the Father, made him, Christ, the Son, to be sin, him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so what Paul is communicating in Second in Corinthians 5:21 is that because of our union with Christ, Christ becomes sin, and we become righteousness. It's on the basis of that, that we spend eternity with the triune God. And again, that is, that is eternal. It's unchanging. That is our saving connection to Christ. There's nothing that can separate us from that. We enter that union by God's grace through faith in the righteous life, atoning death, and life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our being in Christ and his being in us through faith is the mechanism by which Christ takes our sin and punishment and we take his life and blessing. That, that union can't be threatened by anything. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the passage that, that we are looking at this morning is not dealing with union. All right? So, so I have not said this morning that. Our union depends upon our faith and forgiving others, all right? Rather, communion, our communion depends upon our faith and forgiving others. So what is communion? Communion is our experiential enjoyment of fellowship with the Godhead. It's our experiential enjoyment of fellowship with the Godhead. Our communion, our experiential enjoyment of fellowship with God, unlike our union with Christ, it ebbs and flows. Now, that does not mean that God's disposition towards us changes. Does it mean that He loves us any more or any less at any given moment? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's our union, but our experience of it That does ebb and flow. Our enjoyment of the relationship, that can change from day to day, from hour to hour, depending upon a number of factors. Union is the reality of the relationship. Communion is my enjoyment of it. Sometimes I don't feel like God loves me. That does not mean that He doesn't. He certainly does. There may be something preventing me from enjoying His love for me. Sometimes I don't feel like I love Him. Sometimes I don't have joy in the Lord. There can be any number of factors that can affect my communion, my enjoyment of that relationship. A lagging devotional life may be one of those things. This passage gives us a couple of factors that may affect my communion, my enjoyment of my relationship with the Lord. And those two factors are unbelief or weak faith and unforgiveness, my my unwillingness to forgive other people. That is, I I don't trust God and I don't forgive others. Those are two things that will impact my ability to enjoy fellowship with Him. They don't at all change the reality of my union with Him. I'm still in Christ. I'm still going to spend eternity with Him. But I'm not enjoying the fellowship that I might if I trusted Him implicitly at all times and if I forgave everyone. And the area of communion that the Lord focuses on in this text is prayer. When it comes to communion with the Lord, enjoying Him, there is no more meaningful avenue for that than a vibrant prayer life when you're regularly bringing big requests to Him and you are experiencing His answers to those prayers. In the larger context, Jesus is saying, you don't need the temple anymore. We, we, we find in the rest of the, of the New Testament that we are the temple. That's union. We are the temple. We're in union with Christ. Our enjoyment of the fellowship, communion, and specifically this avenue of prayer, rests upon, among other things, our trusting Him and our forgiving others. Now, th- we, we could state it negatively this way. We could say the absence of the, the temple is not going to impede our fellowship with our enjoyment of fellowship with the Lord, but there are two things that might, saying to the Lord, I don't believe you, or saying other sins against me are a much bigger deal than my sins against you, Lord. Those things may impede my ability to enjoy my relationship with the Lord. Now, let's look again at verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it, it'll be yours. Now among the myriad of ways that that verse could be approached, there will be two extreme tendencies. One will be to act as if that verse is the only thing that the Holy Spirit has inspired on the issue of prayer. In other words, this verse Mark 11.24 is the totality of our theology of prayer. And so we can ask anything, absolutely anything, and, and if we believe, we can take it to the bank. There's no caveats, no qualifications, no limitations. It's all right there. The other extreme tendency is to be so horrified that others might abuse the verse or isolate it in that fashion, that we marshal all the caveats from every corner of Scripture so as to gut this verse of the emphasis that Mark intends. Those are the two extremes that we might find in the approaches to this verse, and we we want to avoid both of those, okay? And that is true no matter what passage of Scripture we are studying. We need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We need to understand any one passage in the context of the whole Bible and At the same time, allow the passage that we are studying to impart its particular emphasis. And that is not always easy to do, but we need to strive to do so. Interpret Scripture with Scripture and allow a given passage to impart its particular emphasis to us. So when we interpret Scripture with Scripture, we're going to do both of these things, okay? We're going to do one at a time this morning. So that we can understand the passage rightly. When we interpret Scripture with Scripture, reading this passage in the context of the whole Bible, here's, here's one thing that we find. Prayer is not a blank check signed by faith. Prayer is not a blank check signed by faith. In other words, there are other things that the Bible teaches that give definition to what is said here in Mark 11. There is not much said in Mark 11 by way of of boundaries. Whoever says to this mountain, whatever you ask in prayer, the only catch is that you must believe. Anything, as long as you believe, you will receive it. The, The thing that we have to understand as we approach any passage of Scripture is that there are other things that the Holy Spirit has written. And as it pertains to prayer, there are other things that the Holy Spirit has written on prayer. And as we allow the emphasis of this passage to stand, it is wise to keep in mind the greater context of Scripture on the issue of prayer. So understand, as I speak for the next few minutes, bringing in some other passages, it is not to overrule Mark 11, but to prevent the misunderstanding of it. It is dangerous to take any one passage and make it the the totality of our theology of prayers. So let, let me give you just an example or a couple of examples of what this might look like. And, and people have done this. So on, on one end of the spectrum, s- some people have taken Jesus' words in Luke twenty two forty two, 42, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Some have taken just the last sentence there. Nevertheless, not what not my will, but yours be done. Some of have shrunk that passage down just to the last sentence. And based upon that sentence, they say prayer is simply subordinating your will to God's. And so they will pray only, Lord, just to do your will. I would suggest to you that that is not all that prayer is because the Bible says other things about prayer. And if that is all that prayer was, And if Moses believed that, then after Exodus 32, God's people would have been called the people of Moses, not the people of Israel. I would suggest that conceiving of prayer as only subordinating your will to God's will, that is the death of a vital prayer life, and it pours ice-cold water on communion with God. We need all of what the Bible teaches about prayer in order to enjoy a vital prayer life. Conversely, on the other end of the spectrum, we can't make Mark 11.24 the totality of our theology of prayer. Because if, if we do, when, when, when our prayer doesn't get answered, and we conclude that our faith isn't strong enough, then we will have concluded the wrong thing. Many of us have deathly ill people in our families right now, some very young. If they die, and this passage is all that we have informing our understanding of prayer, those family members die, we may believe that we are at fault because we just didn't believe. The, these other passages of Scripture have not been brought to bear on what we believe about prayer, and we end up having this skewed view of what it means to pray. Now as I look at this passage in the context of the rest of Scripture, I conclude that Jesus is using figurative language in this whole passage, specifically hyperbole, in order to emphasize the importance of faith in prayer. He's emphasizing the importance of faith in prayer. Now, what is hyperbole? Hyperbole is exaggerated language used to make a point. And if you were to go to any theological bookstore and pull a, Pull a commentary off of the shelf, a commentary on the book of Mark. Virtually any of them are going to say about this passage, Mark is using hyperbolic. I mean, yes, Mark is use, Jesus is using hyperbolic language here. That does not mean that Jesus doesn't mean what he's saying, and we'll talk more about that l- later. But when we when we studied hermeneutics on Sunday mornings in, in Sunday school a few a few months ago, we we noted that there are a number of identifying marks of hyperbole, and I want to remind you of just a few of those things that I think are present here that should lead us to believe that Jesus is using hyperbolic language. First of all, if the statement conflicts with what the speaker says elsewhere, we, we, we might be dealing with hyperbole. And I think that what Jesus says here, if we're taking it literally, it would conflict with what Jesus says elsewhere. One example, John 15, 7, which was read for us earlier this morning. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That, that is not the huge open-ended, anything-goes-as-long-as-you-believe passage of, of, of Scripture. So, so that would lead me to believe that Mark eleven twenty four 24 is hyperbolic language. Another identifier the statement conf- if the statement conflicts with the broader teaching of Scripture, you might be dealing with hyperbole. And I really don't want to go into all the other passages in the Bible because it really is my intent to, as we progress, to emphasize Mark's emphasis and not caveat this to death. But on, 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 top, of, on, on top of that, if, if we were to look at every other cross-reference, we'd be here all day. But let me just give you a few. If you're taking notes, you could write these down. John 14, verses 13 and 14. John 15, 16, John 16, 23. James 4, 3, James five 16, 1 John 3, 22. and 1 John five fourteen. If we were to take the time to look at those, we, we would have to conclude that Mark 11.24 is using hyperbolic language because these other passages do not allow for this grand absolutely anything as long as you you believe. Suffice to say, you, you, you can't understand Jesus literally here without finding problems in other teaching on the Bible. The idea that believing prayer for absolutely anything will inevitably, without fail, deliver that thing is not consistent with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. That's a sign that we're dealing with hyperbole. Another identifier, the Scripture, if the Scripture uses all-inclusive or universal language, you might be dealing with hyperbole. You may have heard the claim before, all means all and that's all it means. That's not true. And, and just a, a cursory read through the Scriptures, you will find all-inclusive or, or universal language used frequently in the scriptures hyperbolically, frequently. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always hyperbolic, but frequently that universal, all-inclusive language is hyperbolic. Additionally, the near context here indicates that Jesus is using figurative language. So l- look, look again beginning at verse 21. Verse 21, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, remember that, th- that, that this was an acted-out parable depicting the destruction of the temple. Now what does Jesus say next in verse 22? And Jesus answered them. Now stop right there. Jesus answered them. Jesus isn't changing the subject with what he says next, but he is continuing to speak to this picture of the destruction of the temples. not changing the subject, he's answering them. Verse 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. You may remember from last time, that's not a random example of a wild prayer request that, hey, say to this mountain, be, be, be picked up and thrown into the sea. He's still talking about the judgment of the temple. He's talking about the temple mount. Anybody who says to the temple mount, be, cast, be picked up and thrown into the sea, the sea being a broad biblical picture of judgment, He is speaking, he's speaking in figurative language he, as he, he comes into this, this section on prayer. He's signaling that, that Mark is signaling for us as he's quoting Jesus, that the Lord is he's in figurative language mode, so to speak. Now, how, how do some of these other texts help us to understand the hyperbolic language without gutting it of its emphasis? One text I would bring you to that, that I've already mentioned is John 15, 7. John 15.7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Our relationship with Christ, our being plugged into Him, will have some effect on, our resp- on the response to our prayer. Our abiding in Him and His words abiding in us will have two results that directly inform the components of Mark 11. Those those two components, I want to give those to you. First of all, our abiding in Him and His words abiding in us will greatly affect the kinds of things that we pray for. Our, Our abiding in Him, His words abiding in us, will greatly influence the kinds of things that we pray for. His priorities and desires are going to be our priorities and desires. His word is going to be driving the things that we want and pray for. So what are the kinds of things that we will be praying for? Not exclusively, but what, what would they include? Well, they'll include things like praying for the salvation of the lost, the, self, the, the sanctification of the saved, the, the unity and holiness of the church, local and universal, and physical healing of the sick. Those are big prayers, huge prayers, not safe prayers. They're big and they're guided by the scriptures. When we are, when, we, when, when the Word of God is, is abiding in us and we are abiding in Him, second, a second thing that is helpful is that our abiding in Him and His Word abiding in us will greatly bolster our faith in Him. And that's one of the big questions raised by Mark eleven twenty four. 24. Some of us get heartburn when we read the passage thinking, Oh, no! Ha- how do I grow in faith? I mean, that's, that's my problem. How do, how do I grow? How do I believe more so that my faith will, my, my prayer will be answered? Abiding in Christ, that is, pushing hard into fellowship with Him, praying, joining Him in His work, d- diving deep into the Word, finding the, the character and ways of the Lord in the Word, allowing His Word to abide in us. The more that we do that, the more that we get to know Him and experience the reality that He is a God who can be trusted. This is why John 15, 7 is a crucial cross-reference. We need this cross-reference. This cross-reference doesn't gut Mark eleven twenty four. 24. actually answers questions posed by it. Guards us from disillusionment if we mistakenly take this hyperbolic language literally and we start praying for a Lamborghini full of unicorns and we don't get it. And we start beating ourselves up because we don't have enough faith. And this is an extreme example, obviously, but, but, but you, you, you get the point. As I said, we, we don't have time to look at all the other references, nor, nor do I really want to. I, I would just suggest to you that when we study the Scripture, we need to understand it in the context of all of the Scripture. When we do that here, it prevents us from misunderstanding Mark to say that faith, faith is the signature on a blank check, that you, you can have literally anything as long as you believe. The rest of the Scriptures will not allow us to understand the, the passage that way. Now... We must also allow the passage to to have its own voice and to impart the emphasis that the Holy Spirit has given it. The emphasis of this passage is that faith is a crucial component of answered prayer. Faith is a crucial component of answered prayer. And verse, verse 22 points to this. Have faith in God. Don't have have faith in the temple. Don't have faith in whatever else. Look to God for the things that you need. Trust in Him. Trust in the God who has given His Son to ransom you from your sin and believe along with Paul that a God who would do that, who would not withhold His Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? How will a God like that withhold lesser things in His own Son? So even, even as then we read this passage with awareness of the rest of Scripture's teaching on prayer, so that we don't misunderstand the text or do with it with the Holy Spirit, do with it what the Holy Spirit doesn't intend, we need to be extra careful not to drown the emphasis of the text by caveating it to death. Is so what the Holy Spirit intends for us to come away with from this text, within the context of the rest of the Scripture, is praying. Big prayers, trusting that God will answer them. Some of us may feel like we have been burned in the past, to use the modern language. We've been burned in the past, taking this passage too seriously. We, we prayed for something that we thought was in line with the heart of God. We believed with all our heart that we would receive it. And when we did not receive it, we were troubled. And then, and then perhaps we found these other cross-references that, that remind us that God is good and wise and He knows better. we found those things so comforting that we, we began to cling to those passages And we just don't want to come back to Mark 11, 24. We don't want to go go through the possible pain of believing again, trusting the Lord for something big, and being let down again. So when we come to this passage in Mark, almost as a defense mechanism, we run straight to those other passages, and we say to ourselves, if not to others, but God might not do it. He, He might not heal that person. He might not save that loved one. Don't get your hopes up. It might not happen. It might not be God's will. you got to make sure you add to the end of the prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but God's be done. you got to do that. Caveat, caveat, caveat. Or some of us will say, it's just hyperbole. It's just hyperbole. Listen, hyperbole is intended to emphasize a point, not minimize it. That's the whole point of the device. It, it, it It is not... When, when, when an author, when, when Jesus uses hyperbole, he's not drowning it at the bottom of the ocean. He's putting it up high so you can see. it. It's like, look at how important this is. Trust in God. Pray big things. Believe that he'll do it. That's why he's giving us to it, devoid of all the theological ballast that we might bring to it. Just Pray. I really believe that's why the Holy Spirit has inspired this text without all the caveats. That impulse, that impulse to argue against the intent of the text, has the opposite effect of what the Holy Spirit intends. Because what you walk away doing is not praying, not believing you have lost your capacity, you've lost your will, lost your desire to do the very thing advocated here, which is to pray big things and believe big things, expecting a big God to answer. And it it may be that if you're in that situation this morning, Mark's emphasis is exactly what you need. You need to embrace Mark's emphasis Start praying big prayers again, believing that God is a God who delights to answer prayer rather than a God who delights to not. You you need someone to say, yeah, okay, yes, He, he might not. This is true. Yeah, he's wiser than you for sure. But you know what? He does answer prayer. You know what? God does heal people. You know what? He does save people. Look at you and then look at me. He does save people that we pray for. God does answer prayer. Yeah, maybe He might not, but He does. He does. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord would have you to jettison everything else that the Bible says about prayer. That's why I've spent time this morning bringing those other things in. I'm not saying jettison everything else that the Bible says about prayer. What I am saying is don't jettison this. Pray, believe, expect that it will be done. Pray with biblically informed, God-honoring optimism. Consider how dishonoring it is to the God of the Bible to to approach prayer with a disposition that says I'm just asking because you command me to I've got zero confidence that you'll do anything. That that really is the disposition of a person not well acquainted with God. Many of us many of us wrestle almost regularly with a stale prayer life and I really believe it has to do a lot with this. We have Over-caveated prayer. We've we've just whittled it down to the nub so that we have no category for large prayers. We certainly have no space to to pray prayers that would require faith. Perhaps our communion with the Lord is as dry as moon rock because deep down we've convinced ourselves God's going to do what God's going to do, and He doesn't really care what we pray. If that describes your prayer life and in your disposition toward, toward prayer, first of all, don't fret because you are among many. But second, don't stay there. Please don't stay there. Believe. Believe in God. Jesus says it right here, trust in God. Pray big prayers, believing that God answers big prayers. And 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 maybe in the back of your mind, you're saying again, how? How do I believe that? That's, that is my problem. Jesus is saying, if you only believe, well, that's my issue. I struggle to believe. How do I grow to believe that God will answer the prayer? Listen, here's the answer. Read this thing. Read it. And I'm not, I do not mean that in, in the, in the trite, broad, general sense that we typically do. We say, yeah, read and pray and spend time with other Christians. I, I'm not, that's not what I mean. Here's exactly what I mean. Make war on your wrong disposition toward prayer and make war on your weak faith by prayerfully reading as quickly as you can through this thing from cover to cover, looking specifically for depictions of and teaching on prayer. And let the totality guide your belief on prayer. Not one verse in the Old Testament and not one verse in the New Testament, but the whole book. And as you do that, keep in mind that every time somebody is talking to God, that is a prayer. All of the Psalms that are addressed to the Lord, that's prayer. And when I say read fast, cover to cover, I do not mean in a year. I mean read it like a book. Read it like a book. Uh, Do you have any other books that you have a goal to read in a year? Have we lost our minds? Imagine if you go to somebody at work and say, my goal is to read how to win friends and influence people over the next year. You know what they'll think about you? You're not very serious about winning friends and influencing people. Read it like a book. Read it like somebody who is desperate to know God, desperate to believe that He answers prayer, because He does. He does. And this thing will transform what you think about that God. Read it and just see. Read it fast. This book is is full of nothing but words of life. And, And I'm just challenging you to dedicate yourself to plowing through this thing as quickly as you can, looking for prayer. And I mean three months. I mean two months. If you read this like you would read any other book, you can get through it in two months. You read one hour a day, you can read it in three months. And if you do that every day, praying as you go, Lord, show me what this book depicts on prayer. Show me what it teaches on prayer. You will be transformed. But listen, I'm begging you, do not do a topical study. Read the whole Bible in its context. And what you are going to find, you're going to find death sentences reprieved because of prayer. You will find dead wombs opened, nations created, slaves freed, armies drowned, water coming out of a rock, bread raining down from heaven, Walls torn down, walls rebuilt, lepers cleansed, prison doors opened, dead raised, the church triumphant, Christ returning, and much, much more. Read your Bible from cover to cover. You will find a big God who finds precious prayers that assume that He is almighty and benevolent, and you will be overwhelmed by the character of this God who can be trusted. He can be trusted. And that's what you need, right? You need to believe. Well, The Bible does that. George Mueller, whose prayer life is legendary, you might think, man, this guy that prayed all the time, he probably never read his Bible. He didn't have time. He was in the habit, the lifelong habit of reading his Bible through completely four times a year. And I refuse to believe that those two things are disconnected how can you not pray believing huge prayers when you are ploughing through the bible four times a year i think they're connected i suggest that reading the bible prayerfully is the way to address weak faith it is the antidote to tiny little prayers dry prayer life and as you read as you read as you as you're getting into this grab that prayer from Mark 9 that we saw back there, the prayer that, of that father who's asking Jesus to heal his son. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, that prayer is itself an expression of faith. By asking Him for faith, we're recognizing that we don't manufacture faith ourselves. We're even going to Him for it. So Lord, help me. Help me as I read this. Help me, help me, help me. At the same time, we're, we're realizing I'm choosing to believe what I, what I find here. I'm reading truth. I'm reading the living word. Oh, Lord, let it breed faith while I choose to believe. Do you want to enjoy the Lord? Do you want to enjoy Him? Do you want to have communion? Prayer is crucial. It's absolutely crucial. In that exercise of prayer, faith is crucial. Let us pray big prayers, believing in a big God who delights to answer them. Let us pray. Father, would you transform us? Would you help us to believe the Scriptures? Would you help us to believe them rightly? Would you help us to believe the Scriptures in context while grabbing onto the emphasis of this passage and running with it? And for that reason, praying extraordinary things Trusting that you will answer. Father, I pray that you would, you would just change us, that you would transform us into a people who pray, that we would be people who are reading our Bibles and that that is fueling our prayer, that we're wearing out our knees. We're seeing answers that, that this place is full during our prayer meeting every month. We're praying outrageous things at our prayer meeting, and we're seeing those things answered because we believe what we see in the Scriptures. Lord, would you do these things for us? Father, please do not allow us to settle for just these tiny little prayers, these safe little things that don't require faith and don't even require you. Please save us from that. Please change us. Change us the way that only you can. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus.